Romans chapter 3. In your Bibles this morning. Man has no righteousness in and of himself. He doesn't measure up to the standard of God, and therefore he stands condemned before God. Therefore, if there is to be any reconciliation, if there is to be any bridging of that chasm between God and man, any way for a person to be able to spend eternity with God, God is the one that has to fix that issue. And that's what he did. In verses 21 and 22, Paul mentioned the fix for man's sin. He mentioned in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And then he says down in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He provided his son. God's righteousness was told from way back in the Old Testament, revealing that he would provide a means of salvation. And that's exactly what he did. Sending his own son to die on the cross for sins. And for all those who believe, for those who will place their faith and trust in his work, they will see his righteousness. It's manifested to them. In verse 23, we had the reminder that all those who believe came from the same stock. They were sinners, unworthy of God's glory, falling short of that. And then verse 24, we were told, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How can sinners be saved? By the grace of God, the gift that He provided in His Son through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. God's act of justifying the unrighteous, declaring the unrighteous to be righteous, is a gift of grace, totally undeserved, totally unmerited. But he provided that way out. Continued on in verse 25, explaining that Christ was the propitiation for sins, that satisfaction for sins that turned away the wrath of God, becoming a public display that God's righteousness required because of his passing over of sins previously. Not dealing with them immediately in ages past, but in his patience and tolerance, he put off judgment for sins. Because he did that, that sacrifice had to be made. Those sins had to be dealt with. And he mentioned that in verses 25 and 26. But you note in both verses 25 and 26, he also states again What he previously mentioned in verse 22 as well, that this gift of God is only for those who believe. He said in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And then at the end of verse 26, he said, so that he would be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification, God declaring the sinner to be righteous, comes on the basis of faith. And we went through the final five verses of chapter 3. We saw him stress that fact. In verse 27, there is no boasting that we can do in this process at all. Why? He says in verse 28, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, well then, it's apart from the law, so maybe those who aren't under the law have a different set of works, a different way to be saved. No. Why? Because then he goes on in verse 29, there is only one God. The God of both Jews and Gentiles. 
And so what that means is, when we have in verse 30, that if there is only one God, then there is only one way of salvation. Justification comes through faith and faith alone. The plan of God, the way that God has worked to bring salvation to fallen man, to make salvation possible for us, is His doing. It is not our doing, and it never has been our doing. Even with the law, right? People point to the law, and they say, well, but the law obviously was a way of salvation, right? Well, he mentions in the final verse of chapter 3, by saying that justification is by faith, that doesn't invalidate the law, it doesn't nullify the law. Because the law was never something that would save. Justification was never found by works of the law. Obedience to the law could never save anyone. The law revealed sin. It revealed man's lost and sinful condition. In a way, it did what Paul has been doing for us in the first few chapters of Romans, explaining that a person is not righteous before God. The law showed that. It showed that to the Jews. It showed them their need for a salvation. Just like when we look in those first chapters of Romans, we see everyone's need for salvation. Now, understandably, the Jews would have a hard time with a lot of what Paul is saying here. This, is, this would be new to some of them. It shouldn't have been new, but for some of them it would have been. Because for a lot of the Jews, they had turned the law into this system of works taken the obedience aspect of the law to a place that it was never intended to go. Even in Paul's day, even in the early church, there were Jews who had a hard time with letting go of many of the things that were found in the law. Even those that had become saved, there were still aspects of the law that they would try to cling to and go back to. As Paul goes through here, and he talks a lot about the Jews, he he most likely has these type of Jewish believers in mind for a lot of this discussion. In the early church, there were those, again, saved, who struggled with giving up some of these things that they'd held on to and they'd held on to dearly. In Acts chapter 15, there's the Council of Jerusalem, where Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they discuss the matter of circumcision with the apostles there. And the reason they do that is because certain Jews were going out and preaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. They were saying, yeah, sure, you have to believe in Christ, but you also need circumcision. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul uh, writes the Galatians for basically the same thing. There was an outside influence coming into the church that was preaching circumcision. Certain elements of the law being required for salvation. And Paul, in Galatians 1, rebukes the Galatians harshly for listening to that because they were falling for it. They were accepting that teaching. The division between Jew and Gentile in the early church was still very much an issue. And it seems likely that some of this same sort of influence had crept into Rome, or at the very least, Paul was concerned that it might be something that was going on there. The works of the law and the practice of circumcision, especially for those who were of the nation of Israel, was a very difficult thing for some to let go of. There's something to be said about the pride that a person gets when they have done something that they can boast in themselves. And that's what the works of the law had become for them, right? It was a system that they could say, well, look what I did. 
I did this, I've kept this, I've held this, I've, I'm on a 30-day 30 30-day 30 uh, process, or you know, you, the, the, the OSHA sign, right? 30 days of keeping the law perfectly or something like that. They could point to that and say, I'm proud of that. And that's what the works of the law had become for them. Now, as we come to chapter 4, Paul is going to address this. He's going to address this issue of whether or not a person can boast in what they've done, whether or not you can really put up a sign like that and say it's been 30 days or 60 days or one day. People can't stand it when they're told that they can't do something and someone else has to do it for them. I'm seeing that right now with my grandkids. They're they're not old enough to understand this. Two is the oldest one, right? But you try to help them with something. Don't do that, Grandpa. Don't, don't help me with that. And it's like that's one thing for a two-year-old. But you know what? 30-year-olds do it. 20-year-olds do it, too. I don't want any help. I don't, I don't want your help in this. People have a hard time with that. And this is why the faith versus works argument for salvation is such a battle for some people. People don't want to believe that there is absolutely nothing that they can do to please God and to earn their salvation, even to contribute just a little bit to it. All they can do is believe, trust, and have faith in Him, in His workings, and in His plan. Paul is going to continue here with what he just stated back in verse 28 of chapter 3, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justification is a matter of what he believes, not in what he does. So here in chapter 4, Paul is going to give us an example of this. He's going to use a single reference of someone who was declared to be righteous by God. And he will serve as an example for Jews and Gentiles from 2,000 years ago, when Paul was writing this, all the way up until today. He's going to give us the example of Abraham. A man who was saved by faith and not by works. In chapter 4, throughout the whole chapter, we're going to see three things really about Abraham that were made possible through his faith. We're going to see his justification in the first 12 verses, and that's as far, God willing, as we're going to get today. And then we'll see his promise, the promise from God, um, and then his errors uh, in the second half of the chapter. But this morning, we'll look at the justification of Abraham, and we'll see that it was apart from any works that he had done. So look with me at verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Paul begins with many of his thought-provoking, one of his many thought-provoking questions, right? They're all throughout the book of Romans. What about Abraham? Very few people didn't know who Abraham was, right? He picks an example of someone that everybody knew who Abraham was, especially in the church at Rome. There's evidently a great representation of Jews in the church at Rome. And we saw before Paul directly addressing Jews in chapter 2, and he'll focus on them again when we get to chapter 9. But he's mentioned them quite a bit already, indicating that even though this was predominantly a Gentile church, he was aware that there was a considerable presence of Jews in this church. And like I said, maybe even he'd heard that they were influencing the church in some way. But now here in verse 1, we see him refer to Abraham as our forefather according to the flesh. Paul himself, being a Jew, is making reference to that mutual physical relationship back to Abraham, right? He was part of that line from Abraham. 
Some commentators think that he was referring to Abraham as the spiritual forefather of all believers here. And as we go through chapter 4, we'll see the case being made uh, for Abraham being the father of believers through faith. But here in verse 1, Paul hasn't yet made that clear. He hasn't made that case yet. And we'll see that, that this is the relationship that he wants to start off with, that, that physical relationship to the Jews, because he's going to relate his arguments back to their understanding of who Abraham is. So we'll see how Abraham here became justified. So this is a very important example to the Jews. The Jews of Paul's day, to them, Abraham was he had achieved a status that resembled really the status that some have of, like in the Catholic Church, of Mary. Um, in the literature of the time, Abraham was seen as someone who was sinless, who had always been righteous, someone who didn't need to be saved. Uh, they looked at him as if he was one who was perfect in every respect. When you look at Abraham, you're talking about perfection. Don't touch Abraham. He's a perfect example. But he wasn't. He was a sinner, just like anyone else. And anyone who reads through the book of Genesis can readily see that Abraham certainly had his flaws. So what is it that Abraham found? Well, looking at the example of Abraham, what did his own justification before God reveal to be true? Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If God had seen Abraham as righteous based on the works that Abraham had done, if Abraham had lived a perfect life, if Abraham had truly been sinless and he really didn't need salvation as some people thought, then his sinless character would have shown him to be perfectly righteous. He would have been justified by the things that he did. And therefore, what would that have meant? Well, since it was all on him, he would have something to boast about, right? He'd be able to write down on that little board, all my life, perfectly sinless. And that's what people think today, right? That would give him something to boast about, right? And that's what people think today, and that's where people go today. It's certainly what they act like. Accomplishing something totally on your own, without help from anyone, people all the time puff themselves up because of these things. They proudly say, I did this. Look what I accomplished. Look what I did. I mean, we talk about the board, and I talk about that in jest, but there are people that put up banners and signs to themselves celebrating their accomplishments, right? It's the same thing. I did this. In fact, the world encourages that kind of behavior today. Take credit for all your accomplishments. And this is where that type of boasting comes from. But the thing is, if Abraham was truly justified by something that he did, if Abraham really did earn his own salvation or really did do something that got him saved, he would be able to boast. He would be able to say, I did this. There would be some truth to that. But we know that that's not the point here. What did we see back in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 3? Paul asked, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Boasting is excluded. You can't claim that you did it on your own. Why? For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If Abraham had saved himself, made himself righteous, in that case, sure he could boast, but he can't. There is no cause to boast. And that's what the last phrase in verse 2 is indicating, but not before God. Before God, Abraham had no reason to boast. 
Because as Paul has already pointed out, verse 10 of chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. That includes Abraham. Verse 20, he said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. It really can't be any clearer. We are not justified by anything that we do. It is a gift from God that he brings about through faith. This is why we have no reason to boast. And why Abraham had no reason to boast either. Before God, that's not how Abraham's justification came about. Okay, so how did it come about? How was Abraham justified? Well, that's where Paul goes in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What's the best way to prove your point about a spiritual truth? Back it up with scripture. And that's where Paul goes here. Paul backs up what he says by referring to Genesis 15.6. So turn with me back to Genesis chapter 15 for a minute. Let's take a look at what happens here. In Genesis chapter 12, I want you to go to 15, but in Genesis chapter 12, that's when God calls Abraham, or Abram at the time, and promises him that he will have descendants, the land of Canaan, all of those things within the Abrahamic covenant. But now, as we come to chapter 15, this is several years later, and Abraham has no children yet, right? He's been promised descendants, but years later, Abraham has no children. And so, and he and Sarah are not getting any younger. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you, your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So here Abram is already an old man, and he has no children, right? He's been promised descendants. What's the one key thing that you need if you've been promised descendants? You need children, right? And he has none. Back in these days, children were a great blessing, and the lack of children was seen as a great curse. And so that was Abram's perspective at this point. A provision had been made in those days for a childless couple to adopt someone, a slave or someone in their household, who could be their heir. And this would be someone that they could point to and say, they will provide for us in our old age, they will give us a proper burial. And this is where Eliezer comes in. Not Abram's own son, but one who was born in his household. So this is Abram's plan B. Okay, well, God promised me these things. I haven't had a kid, so I'll have to appoint someone myself. But here, God tells Abram that he will have more descendants than he can count. He reaffirms the promises that he made with him years earlier. And what's Abram's response then in verse 6? Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God revealed truth to Abram, and Abram believed him. Thus his belief was reckoned, counted, credited as righteousness. There is no issue of works here. 
Abram didn't do anything but believe what God had told him. That's it. And if that and it was that belief that was credited to him as righteousness. So back in Romans chapter 4. Credited. This word for credited. This is the word used for reckoned or credited that we just saw in Genesis 15:6. It's an accounting term that means to credit to someone's account. Sometimes the word reckoned is used, sometimes counted, sometimes charged or accounted. There's many different words that are used um, for this same word. Uh, But it's all talking about the same thing. Abram had a response of faith to the revelation that God gave. And it was credited to his account as righteousness. He believed what God said. Righteousness was not something that was inherent to him. As the first chapters of Romans made clear, it's not inherent to anyone. We don't have righteousness. We are not righteous. But it was credited to him from the outside, not by anything that he did himself. From this point on, in Romans chapter 4, through verse 12, the justification of Abraham by faith is what Paul is going to be talking about in every verse. This word for credited is used in every verse from here on except for verse 7 and verse 12. He's going to use this this word, and he'll use it a few more times even towards the end of the chapter. So you get the idea, this credited word is important in this context. Now Abraham is the example here, but he's not the first person to believe in God. Even not the first person to have righteousness credited to him, right? And In Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter on faith... Um, The writer of Hebrews lists out Abel, Enoch, and Noah, three men that came before Abraham that had faith. But Paul makes this example of Abraham for really a few reasons. One being its clear-cut simplicity in Genesis 15.6. We can point back to that verse in Genesis 15.6 and say, that's when God credited righteousness to Abraham. The only thing that allowed Abraham to be moved over from the unrighteous column to the righteous column in God's ledger was that he believed in God. But he was also using Abraham because of his status before the Jews, the importance that he plays with them. He was that prime example, which we'll see as we move through this discussion on him here. Well, let's look. Where does he go then in verse 4? Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So now between verses 4 and 5, we're going to see a point and a counterpoint. Verse 4 is the point of works once again. And verse 5 is about faith. So there's a contrast here between these two verses. Verse 4, to the one who works, the wage that they get is what is owed to them from the work that they do. Right? We'll talk about wages in, in 623. The wages of sin is death, right? The thing that you do. You earn a wage from that. We understand this concept, right? You understand the concept of working and getting a wage. This isn't difficult. If I go to my job and I work 40 hours this week, I get a paycheck for that, right? That's a wage that my employer and I have agreed upon for the work that I did. When I get paid, I don't say, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, I wasn't expecting this. No, I was expecting that. I did the work. I expect to be paid, right? I earned that money. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. We saw back in verse 24 of chapter 3, 
that sinners are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It is grace. It is something that was given to us that was unmerited, unearned, not something that was owed to us. In verse 4 here, his wage is not credited as a favor. It is not credited as grace. That's the same word used. A wage for a work isn't grace. It isn't a gift. Salvation is a result of the grace of God. It is bestowed freely by him. He is in no way obligated to give us what he did, to provide what he did. In the case of Abraham, God chose Abraham by his own divine purposes. It wasn't because of anything that Abraham did. It wasn't because of anything that Abraham was going to do. God wasn't obligated to save Abraham over anyone else. You look at all the people that were on the world, and I don't know how many there were at that time, but you look at all the people that were on the world, in the world in that day and age, why did he pick Abraham? That was God's purpose, God's reasoning. Not because of anything that Abraham did. If Abraham had earned his righteousness, then it would be an obligation on God's part, and it would be something that God owed him. But that's what it's not. Verse 4 is what it's not. But now in verse 5, we have the counterpoint. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. How is salvation accomplished? It is accomplished through faith, by believing in him and the truth that he has revealed, the work that he has done. Now, this verse refers to those who don't work, right? You have the people that worked in verse 4, and now here are the people that don't work. And don't misunderstand, because some people do misunderstand from this verse. This isn't talking about deadbeats. It's not talking about people who, oh, this person won't work to support their family. People take verses out of context for crazy reasons, right? It's also not referring to what responsibilities a Christian does or doesn't have after their salvation. No, this is simply talking about those who aren't trying to rely on their own accomplishments for their salvation. Remember, we're talking about what is required to be saved. The one who does not work, he does nothing to add to what Christ already did on the cross. That's the point here. Throughout Abraham's life, he did many things that showed his faithfulness to God. And he did many works that would have been pleasing to God, but none of those saved him. Those things would have come after he was saved. So what's in view here is one who doesn't earn their salvation or try to rely on their works of any kind, but instead believes in God and trusts in Him for their salvation. The verse, this verse makes it clear that faith is not a work, right? Don't make that mistake. Well, I believed that was a work that I did. No, believing is just a response to what God did. It is not a work in and of itself. Now, once again, in verse 5, you see that word credited show up here. His faith is credited as righteousness. It was credited to him in the quote from verse 3. A wage is not credited as grace in verse 4, and now it's credited as righteousness again. He was not righteous, but righteousness was credited to him. It was accounted to him. It's not based on what he's done. It's based on his response to what God has done, responding to God in faith. But you notice who's in view here in verse 5. 
Yes, we're talking about Abraham. He's the primary example. But, but at this point, Paul has broadened it out to make a point, that, to make it more general than that. It's the person who believes in him who does what? Justifies the ungodly. He that justifies the ungodly. Before he was saved, what was Abraham? What are we all? Ungodly, right? Unrighteous. Back in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what God pours out His wrath upon, the ungodly, the unrighteous. These are the ones who stubbornly oppose God, who refuse to worship Him, who reject Him. When we think of Abraham, what do we think? We think of him as the righteous man who followed after God, right? But when God called him, he was an ungodly man. He had been raised in Ur of the Chaldeans, a city known in history as being polytheistic. And we know that his father Terah had been a man who followed after other gods. So it's likely that Abram had been raised in that system of worship as well. This is true of everyone who is saved. All are ungodly until the point of salvation. When God declares them to be righteous, right? Because justification is of the ungodly. Turn with me over to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. In the second chapter of Mark, Jesus comes and is eating in the house of Levi, or Matthew. And the Pharisees catch wind of him being there, right? He's, he's in the house of Matthew. And what do we know about Matthew? He was a tax collector, right? That's not good. In verse 16, the Pharisees ask the disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They don't have the prestige that they have today, right? I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, <laughs> And Jesus hears their question, and in verse 17, look what he says. It says, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? Why was he reclining and eating with sinners? Because he called sinners. He came to save sinners. He came to justify sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. Why? Because if there were any, which there weren't, but if there were any righteous, they wouldn't have needed to be justified. They wouldn't have needed for him to come. He came to provide salvation for those who needed salvation, who were the ungodly, sinners. We were all ungodly. So Jesus came to justify the ungodly. That's why uh, that's what his sacrifice made provision for. That's what God will do for those who put their faith and trust in him. So going back to Abraham, back in Romans chapter 4. If Abraham had indeed already been righteous, as the Jews thought, holding him up on that pedestal, God wouldn't have had to have declared him righteous, right? That's what justification is, to declare him to be righteous. If he was righteous already, why do you have to declare him to be righteous? But he was an ungodly man who was justified by God. 
Now, in the next three verses, Paul will pick up on another example to strengthen his argument. And he he calls upon a psalm of David to do this here. And we're not done talking about Abraham, but he refers to what David had to say on the same subject, starting in verse 6. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom... uh, on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So once again, he goes to the scripture to back up his point. What David had to say about the same subject, God crediting righteousness apart from works. In this case, he's going to use what David wrote in Psalm 32 to show that the man who has been credited as righteous is a man who has been blessed. And that man has been blessed by the forgiveness of his sins. In Psalm 32, David is speaking personally as one who has received this blessing, right? He's not just the author, he's also the subject here. This is one of the Psalms that David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba, where he's writing of the blessing of forgiveness that he has in the Lord. So what does he say? What we have in verses 7 and 8 are found in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Where he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. As a man who's had righteousness credited to him, as Paul mentioned in verse 6, he now uses David's words about how that same man also experiences the removal of his own sins from his account. Lawless deeds have been what? Forgiven, he says. Sins have been covered. The Lord will not take those sins into account. In the crediting of righteousness to a person, placing that on their account, the other effect of that is that the sins from that person are no longer applied to them. They're no longer found on that account. They're removed from that account. Their ledger I mean, we're talking about accounting, right? So you can think of this in accounting terms. So their ledger is wiped clean with regard to what they owe for those sins. Our word for credited is that last phrase in verse 8, will not take those sins into account. That's that same word again. Take into account, credited. If you are credited with righteousness, if the payment of Christ's death on the cross has been credited to your account, then there's nothing further that's owed. That's justification. When I think of this, I think about those people, you, you hear stories from time to time, maybe you've participated in this, but you hear stories from time to time where people, somebody's in a drive-thru and they pull up to the drive-thru window and they're ready to pay for their order and somebody says, oh, the car in front of you already took care of that. And you're like, what? You know, you're there ready with your credit card, you're willing, you know, ready and willing to pay, and they say, nope, it's taken care of. Here's your, here's your happy meal, right? You're... You're sitting there with cash or credit card in hand, all ready to pay, but the ledger for your Happy Meal has been erased. There's nothing owed for that meal. It had a dollar amount associated with it, right? I mean, there was a cost to it. It had a dollar amount associated to it. You ordered it, so you you owed for it, but now it's already been paid by someone else. There's nothing more that you have to do except take it, receive it. They hand you your food, and you're free to go. That's like what we're seeing here. The blessed man here owes a debt that they cannot pay. But through faith, by believing in what Jesus Christ already did for them on the cross, they no longer have to pay that. 
What they owe has been covered. It's been erased, forgiven. Instead, they have the righteousness of God credited to their account. This is the blessing that we enjoy as believers, that our sins are forgiven. Just as righteousness has been added to our account, reckoned to us, our sins have been removed from it. God no longer takes those into account. All that stuff that we saw in the first several chapters, the sin, the judgment, the unrighteousness, the ungodliness, that stuff that made us stand guilty before a holy and righteous God, that has all been removed from us. The payment has already been made and applied, and we no longer owe for that. If, if we have placed our faith and trust in Him for salvation. This is why doing good works is not sufficient for someone to be saved. Their account is already blemished with sin, right? Good works going forward don't have any power to remove what was previously done. If it was possible for an unbeliever to say, you know what, from this day forward, I'm going to live a perfect life, right? My resolution is I'm going to stop sinning and I'm only going to do good things for the rest of my life. If it was possible for them to do that, it would be remarkable. They would be a more pleasant person to be around. But it would have absolutely no bearing on their standing before God. Even if they were able to do that, it wasn't, wouldn't save them. And why? Why wouldn't it save them? Because they already had been condemned by their previous sins. One sin is all that it takes. Their account already has a balance that must be taken care of, right? You have, a, you have a new credit card, and you use it one time. You use it at the dollar store and buy a $1 item. And you say, I'm never going to use this credit card again. Well, you still have to pay that one thing that's on there. Even if you stick it in a drawer and you never pay it again, you still have that charge of that one thing that's on there. Stopping using it doesn't erase that debt until it's paid. So for those sins to be forgiven, they must believe God and come to salvation on His terms, not their own terms. So in justification, God credits us with righteousness and He no longer credits us with sin. That's the blessing that David is thankful for in Psalm 32 that Paul reveals for us here. Now in the next four verses, Paul is going to shift back to Abraham. We've been talking about Abraham. Here's what David has to say about it, but now we're coming back to our primary example. And starting in verse 9, he's going to bring up the work of circumcision, the right that the Jews held on to. It's a perfect example because it's, a, it's, it's something that you do, right? And it's the thing that the Judaizers in the early church would try to push on these early Christians, saying that it was necessary for salvation. The Judaizers being those people that were going around saying different works of the law were necessary for salvation. The Jerusalem Council, the issue that Paul had in the church at Galatia, these things that we talked about earlier, having established that justification is by faith apart from works, and also that there is only one God and only one way of salvation that he mentioned in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 3, he's going to clear this up now for the Romans as well. Look at what he says in verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to, credited to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, the blessing that he's talking about here is the one that we just saw from David, right? The blessing of knowing that sin is no longer credited to your account. It's been wiped away. 
Who is that blessing for, circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, David was obviously a Jew. To ask that about David would be met with an obvious answer. Must be circumcised, right? David was circumcised. We're Jews. We think that it's only for the circumcised. Remember, the Jews were the circumcised. Gentiles were the uncircumcised. David was most definitely a Jew. So that question would be an easy one. But it's not David that he mentions here. Again, it's Abraham. The importance of circumcision was a very big deal to the Jews. Some of whom, uh, even after becoming believers, would have had a hard time with this. It was so ingrained into their way of thinking. In, is the forgiveness of sins, the crediting of righteousness, only for those who are circumcised? That's the question that he's asking in verse 9, as well as what does Abraham's justification have to say about this? Well, he goes on in verse 10, and he starts to answer it with another question, answering a question with a question. This is Paul's way here. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Was Abraham declared to be righteous while circumcised or uncircumcised? That's the question that Paul puts before us here. So to see this, look back with me again to the book of Genesis. Let's go back there one more time. We were here earlier seeing Abraham was saved, but come back to Genesis 16 this time. We were in 15 earlier. Now go back to Genesis 16. Again, once again in chapter 12. So I just want to do a little math here with you. I mean, it's, it's simple math. It's not the Daniel math that we did. It's, it's, it's a little simpler. In chapter 12, we were told that when Abram left Haran, right after he was called, he was 75 years old. He was called in chapter 12. He left his home in Haran to travel to Canaan. By the time chapter 15 comes around, he's already in Canaan. So there have been, and there have been quite a few events occurring since he left Haran. So it's safe to say that he's older than 75 at that point in time, but we're not entirely sure how old he was. When you get to chapter 16... Abram and Sarah still don't have any children, and they're, uh, but they're a little impatient. So Abram was, uh, has a child with Sarai's maid, Hagar, and that's when Ishmael is born. And this would be plan C. Remember, before we saw plan B with um, Eleazar. Now he's moved on to his third option here and had a child with Hagar. Well, at the end of chapter 16, look it down at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So at this point in time, after he had this child with Hagar, we have Abram at 86 years old. Now, it takes a little time to bear a child, and we're all aware. So this is obviously some time after the events of chapter 15 that we saw earlier. So when was he saved? Well, he was saved sometime between the age of 75 and 86, right? Somewhere in there. We don't really know for sure when in there, but sometime in there. But now we come to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we have when Abram was circumcised, which is really the relevant part here. So look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Okay. So now, between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, 13 years have passed, right? 86 to 99. Then, 
after repeating the promises that God had been given, giving him for many years now, you come down to verse 9 of chapter 17, and it says, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So here now, at 99 years old, the right of circumcision is established between God and Abraham. So how long had it been between the time that he was saved and the time that he was circumcised? Well, at the very least, it was 14 years. Probably longer than that, but we don't know for sure. Jewish tradition says that it was 29 years, which if you look at these numbers that we looked at, it doesn't, I don't really know how that adds up. But the point is, it was a long time. Several, many years had gone by between the time that Abraham was saved and the time that he was circumcised. Okay, So you see the order of events here. First, Abram is saved, and then years later, he's circumcised. Now, Come back to Romans chapter 4. I just wanted to go through that as a little background for what Paul's talking about in these verses. The Jews would have known all this. They should have known all this. But now we see exactly what we're talking about here. So again in verse 10, we have the question, how then was it credited? How was, how was Abraham's faith credited to him while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then he provides the answer, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham was not circumcised when God credited righteousness to him. He was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile, is really what Paul's getting at here. He goes on in verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. What does he say that circumcision was? Not something that saved him. Not a work that was necessary for salvation, but it was a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while he was uncircumcised. It was a seal, it was a sign of what, he had, already, uh, of what had already happened to him, of the faith that he had already placed in God many, many years ago. So you see the point that Paul is making here. What bearing does circumcision have on salvation? On justification. None. Nothing. It can't. Because Abraham was justified many years before he was ever circumcised. Years earlier, when he was uncircumcised, God credited him with righteousness. God hadn't even made circumcision a thing yet. Now, some might say, well, yeah, but that was then, right? That was. But remember the point that Paul made in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 3. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is God. He is one. There is only one God. And he has one plan of salvation. And he has always had one plan of salvation. Now, over the years, the details of the plan have been revealed in greater detail. Abraham didn't know many of the details that we know, like we're studying here in Romans. But the plan was always, by grace, through faith, not of works. 
not of works of any kind. Circumcision isn't required for salvation. How do we know? Abraham was saved at least 14 years or so before he was ever circumcised. The works of the law never required for salvation. How can we say that? We can use the same argument. Abraham never even saw the law. Yet he was saved, having never followed the law. We can look at arguments that people make today, right? It's the same thing. It's the same argument. Does baptism save you? That's a parallel argument that people make here. When was Abraham baptized? Ask that question. He was never baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. You see how this works. You see Paul's argument here. Sacraments, going to church, D-groups, insert whatever you want that someone might do right here, and the answer is the same. God has one plan. It isn't something that was required then. It's not required now. It's not about whether those things are or aren't important. That's not what we're talking about here. Just like circumcision, it was a sign of a covenant between God and the Jewish nation. It had a place. It's not to say that it wasn't important. It was an act of obedience. It just didn't save. It wasn't, and it isn't required for salvation. Justification comes on the basis of faith apart from works of any kind. So in Paul's example, here's Abraham, the father of the Jews from a physical standpoint, but credited with righteousness while he was a Gentile. So what does that mean? Well, look at the last part of verse 11. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, of the circumcision, but also, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. We see here that Paul is again drawing on this same point, that in the plan of salvation, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He said in verse 16 of chapter 1, when it when it applied to the gospel's saving power, Jew first, and also to the Greek. It was available to both. We saw it several times in the next two chapters. Jew and Gentile alike stand condemned, stand under God's wrath and judgment for their unrighteousness and sin. It applies to them both. We saw it at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, talking about all who believe. There is no distinction. Verses 29 and 30, talking about one God saving circumcised and uncircumcised one way through faith. Now here we see what the example of Abraham means in that same context. Abraham is the father of those who believe. He's the father of the Gentiles who believe because through faith he had that righteousness credited to him. And Gentiles who believe will have righteousness credited to them in the same way that it was credited to Abraham. This is fatherhood in a spiritual sense here, through the provision of the Abrahamic covenant that's found in Genesis 12, 3, where God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In that promise, there was a provision for blessing for all nations, not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but for Gentiles as well. Now, don't get me wrong. The Abrahamic covenant is still primarily a covenant with Israel, and there are still elements of it that pertain to the physical aspect of the nation of Israel. But there is also provision for Gentiles found there as well. And Paul 
uh, as Paul talks about the fatherhood of Abraham for Gentiles here, there's an indication of the blessings of that promise. And we'll talk more about that as we go on in the chapter. We won't get to it today, though. But there is still distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Paul indicates that here as well. Uh, We have the Gentiles referenced in verse 11, but then the Jews in verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So that last part of verse 11 was the father of the uncircumcised, the spiritual father. He was justified by faith. Gentiles are justified by faith. But now he's talking about Jews in verse 12. He is still the father of the Jews. The father of circumcision to those who are not, who not only are of the circumcision, he is still their father, but their circumcision is not enough to receive the blessings that we're talking about here, who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. He goes beyond the physical once again. Much like we saw at the end of chapter 2 where he said he is not a Jew who was one outwardly. The true circumcision is a matter of the heart and that's where this comes in as well. This is the same type of argument. Faith, circumcision might, might identify you as a physical Jew but it's nothing if you don't also have faith. Even the Jews needed to believe in order to be credited with righteousness or their circumcision had no meaning. They needed to have the same type of faith that Abraham had while he was uncircumcised. So from a Jewish standpoint, this would be very eye-opening for them. Abraham wasn't a righteous man. He was ungodly. He wasn't circumcised. He was uncircumcised. And yet, by faith, because he believed God, God justified him. He credited that righteousness to his account. He erased the debt of sins from his ledger. It's all about faith. It's not about what you do. There are many great, uh, there are a great many religious ceremonies and rituals that people hold on to in order to feel that they're closer to God, that they can somehow become closer to God by doing these things. But the sad thing is, these things don't bring them closer. In fact, if anything, a lot of those things drive people away. Why? Because that's what they rely on. That's what they boast in. Oh, I do this every week. I do this every day. I do whatever it is. This is what I'm holding on to, and I don't need any help. Don't help me, Grandpa. I can do it on my own. That's what people do. That's how they act. Again, it goes back to boasting. We want to boast in our own accomplishments to be able to say we did something on our own. There's only one God. He has provided only one way of salvation. And people, all the people really need to do is just listen to him and believe in what he says is the way to be saved. God says that you're a sinner. Believe that you're a sinner. God says that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Sins. Believe that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. God says that his son was raised from the dead, believed that he was raised from the dead. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the point here. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We thank you, Lord, so much for uh, the plan and provision that you've made uh, for salvation. We thank you, Lord, for this this gift that you have given. And we pray, Lord, that that 
as believers, as those that have trusted in you, Lord, that it would be first and foremost on our minds to be sharing this with others. We thank you, Lord, for the, uh, just the truth that we have here through the Apostle Paul and your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the, the examples that we have. And we know, Lord, that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to earn or to uh, uh, fix our relationship with you. It is only through the work that you've done on the cross. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that message. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to just make that a priority to share that. Lord, we just pray that you would be with us as we leave here, um, go into the next hour. Pray, Lord, that that would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you as well. We pray for Josh as he brings us the word, that, uh, Lord, it would just be a time that would, would honor you, Lord, that we would, we would understand your word and that we would be able to take the truth that we hear today and use that in our lives to bring glory to you as well. And, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.